This is your host, Josh Sharp, and welcome to New Hope's Cutting Room Floor Podcast, where we get a chance to talk about what didn't make it into the sermon this week and what our speaker would have liked more time to engage with. We'll also go over some questions that you might have had and generally just have a good time talking about what was on our speaker's mind. Today, we're here with John Rosenstiel and special guest speaker from this weekend, Dr. Nijay Gupta, to talk about the sermon, Can We Take the Bible Seriously?, from our current sermon series, 10 Questions, Exploring Barriers to Our Faith. All right, today we have a special guest with us that taught this Sunday as well, Dr. Nietzsche Gupta. Um, and John is also here. We just don't care as much today. I mean, wow. is, it, is, it that, is that how this goes? That personally at all, Josh. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. It's presiding. Glad to have you here, man. <laughs> Nietzsche, um, could you tell us a little bit about your bio and, and life as we get into this? Sure, yeah, I'm not going to do the, the whole story from cradle to now, but I was born and raised in North Central Ohio um, and uh, went to seminary, uh, became a Christian as a teenager. I talked a little bit about that in my sermon. I uh, became a Christian actually through my brother, shout out to Neil, and, um, you know, went to college. I, I, I went to a secular college. I studied public relations, which I mentioned in my sermon, actually. Uh, my parents said I had to have an a income-earning a major, and, uh, and nowadays, so that's I showed a big them. Job, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you chose public relations as your degree for the income okay. Earning? For full disclosure, it, it was uh, we called it the ministry major because we could. Mm. It was an easy major, so we could focus our free time on doing ministry. So all for the Lord's work. But uh, um, I actually learned a lot. I took courses in journalism and marketing, and that's helped me in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think and, it's awesome. And then I went to seminary in Boston area at Gordon-Conwell. I actually met my wife, Amy, who some of you know from uh, church ministry here. Uh, we met there, even though she's from Indiana. I'm from Ohio, Midwest uh, people. And we had our first child there. Um, I fell in love with teaching. I kind of had an interest in pastoral ministry and teaching. I thought I'd pursue the Ph.D. route, so I went to England to do my PhD at the University of Durham, famous for two things at the time. One was N.T. Wright was a bishop of Durham, mm. if you know who N.T. Wright is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, kind of a big deal. Um, if you're not an N.T. Wright fan, then Durham was one of the Harry Potter filming sites. Oh. So oh. they filmed parts of the first and second movie uh, in the Durham Cloisters. And so Now I'm curious. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, there's actually fake cobwebs still there um, in the cathedral if you, awesome. if you visit. Video it's an incredible behind. campus. It is. It's pretty I mean, amazing. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you know, we had our son there, and then uh, we lived all over the place. We don't have to go through it, but after that, we lived in Ohio. We lived in Seattle, Philadelphia, New York. Yeah, you guys have impressed me. Me and my <laughs> wife always talk about this. Like, there's not many people that have moved more than we have, yeah. and you guys have. We've moved a lot. By, by a chunk, too. Yeah, was, not not by was choice. Really it was really, we. I graduated when that uh, economic you know crash happened, and... 2008, 2009. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we, we had an opportunity to come out to Portland for me to teach at George Fox University. Eventually, I uh, ended up working for Northern Seminaries. This little advertisement Ooh. for Northern in <laughs> Chicagoland, but I actually live here in Portland metro area. So what do I do? I teach New Testament. I uh, get to preach at churches. I get to have coffee and lunch with great pastors and Christian leaders. So I, I kind of have uh, my dream job and, and really happy about that. That's awesome. You guys got to both like talk my wife into me being able to get a doctorate. I'm just pushing this out yeah. there now because I need help on that one. Well, yeah, and f- full disclosure, I think the New Hope crowd knows this, but I'm Nijay's one of my teachers. Yeah. So I go to Northern. I'm I'm doing the doctorate of ministry program, and uh, and then as you said, Amy is our pastor student ministries here, and 
as I think we share a little bit Sunday, we're hoping to have Nietzsche in a more regular rotation of teaching. So you'll, you new hopers will get to know him. Are you, uh, are you ordained? I don't even know the answer to this question. Okay. This is kind of funny. So, um, we became Methodist when we moved to England, um, and they have, you know, the Methodist church is called the Methodist church of Great Britain. And if you want to begin training as a preacher, they're called lay preachers. Uh, the first stage is being on note as a lay preacher. Mm. And what that means is they write a note and they give it to you. Mm. And so I never finished my training, so I'm still technically on note as a lay preacher in the in the Methodist Church of Great Britain. So you're like half ordained? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I never finished the initial training. <laughs> so it's not Reverend Doctor, it's just it's not Doctor. It's not. Yeah, just that's doctor. a good point. That's a good yeah, point. Yeah, just trying to clarify. I, I have a good question though on the term of full disclosure. How's John as a student? Ooh, <laughs> oh, John as really... a student. There's some uh, probably some uh, uh, privacy issues there. Me saying that, <laughs> but I'll, that's probably really I'll say vulnerable he, here. he's emerged as a leader of his cohort. He's really oh. thoughtful. Um, you know, my colleague Scott McKnight got to know him well on the mm-hmm. on the international trip they went on to the Holy Lands, and. Um, he fits right at Northern. How about that? <laughs> That's a very tactful answer. Yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> and then DJ, how how many how many books have you written? I, I know you know the number. You got to have it. You yeah. know. Let's, let's so, get down so to you can divide it here. into different categories. Oh, it's like, just give us an answer. <laughs> written versus edited versus well, how many so books have probably, you written? Probably okay, let's go written. written. Let's go written. Okay, published or not yet published. Oh my gosh! Just uh, not published. yet published. Published. We'll, we'll include, published. Oh, published. 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 Okay, right. so I'd say probably eight. Eight. All right. Okay. Yeah, and then a handful more have been edited, and then a few more in the hopper. What's your What's your favorite book that you've written? As you look back, that's a good question. Um, so I'll say probably the book that kind of has the most sentimental value will be my commentary in the Lord's Prayer. Mm. Um, when I was uh, probably seventeen, I was pretty young Christian. And I didn't know much about the Bible, and I didn't know much about Christian tradition. And I had a public school teacher who took us on a, a trip to Italy for, this is going to sound like the nerdiest thing ever, Latin club slash art club trip, spring break. I was in the Latin club, by the way. And so she took us, she took us to uh, Italy, and she, she's a devout believer. Her husband, I realized later, was a seminary professor. Uh, she took us to the Vatican and we, and she gathered some of us who were Christian and we prayed the Lord's prayer in front of uh, the Vatican. She's not Catholic, but we, we still pray the Lord's prayer in front of the Vatican. And it's one of these moments that just, I could just sense the presence of God in that moment. It was just a holy moment. And since Mm. then, you know, 17 years old, I've been kind of obsessed with the Lord's prayer as just a central text of the faith. And so I ended up writing a book. So a, a book series approached me and said, if you can write if you write a book on any text mm. of the Bible, any small text, what would you write on? And I didn't have to think about it as Lord's Prayer. So that one's that one stuck with me. I got to pick photographs. I got to talk about things throughout church history that relate to Lord's Prayer. But that's that's got a special place in my heart. Yeah, New Hope crowd, you may remember this. We did a series on the Lord's Prayer a while ago, and uh, I interviewed you and Wesley Hill, yeah, who Wesley, also yeah, wrote together. a book on the Lord's Prayer. So that, I remember that being a really fun conversation. I was trying to get you guys to fight, but you're both too <laughs> nice. And So yeah, if you can look back in the archives, you can probably find that interview if that intrigues you. And then I know you got some books coming out. One, 
I think our class kind of helped with the strange Christians or something yeah, like that. Religion. Strange yeah. religion. Yeah. Strange religion. It's you basically, did help. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I made them do some of my research for free, but <laughs> yeah, I have a book coming out on, on, um, you know, this group of early Christians, the new Testament, uh, you know, people, they were so different than the religions of the time in just about every way you could imagine. Just real basic things like not having material sacrifice, not having a physical temple. And I really wanted to explore that. I forgot why were they so different? You know, we, I live in Portland, Oregon, weird capital of the world. Mm. <laughs> and so to talk about these Christians as weird or strange, uh, why and what does that mean? So that's, uh, that's um, a project that I'm about halfway done with. Um, I have a book, I think I've actually shown... Uh, Pastor John before, uh, that's coming out called 15 New Testament Words of Life, How to Live Life in the Real World, I think is a subtitle. They might oh, change yeah. That. You, you sent me uh, some of that. That was, that was excellent. Are you going to, have you decided who you're going to dedicate some of these books to? I mean, that one, are you fishing? Are you fishing? That one is actually, that one is actually dedicated to Amy. Oh, I don't want to crowd so that you territory. Yeah, you can't. Good luck with that one. The other yeah. ones, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> All right, Josh, I've already got us way off course. Of but, course, uh, of course. Yeah. Um, real quick, Nijay, if uh, for our listeners, we're not going to go back over the entire sermon. We're not. You guys, listeners, you can go listen for that. Um, but we're here to jump in to the cutting room floor of what came off that sermon. But for a quick reminder, can you give us like a two-minute glance at the sermon this weekend? Yeah, the topic was, can we take the Bible seriously? And I think behind that is a question a lot of people ask, which is, um, is the Bible true? Is it, does it really reflect history? Does it really reflect what God's done in the world? Um, we live in a pluralistic society. People don't take the Bible for granted as fact. So I wanted to address that um, as, as a main topic because people are really curious about authority and organized religion. Um, so that was kind of the premise of, you know, wanting to approach that. I started out with a text from the gospel of John where Jesus gives a hard teaching and a whole bunch of disciples leave. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, Jesus can teach things that are strange and perplexing. You know, the thing that I love most about that passage is he hasn't, he hasn't had the Lord's table where he explains everything, and yet he gives this teaching: "You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood." Yeah, yeah. And it seems it's a to good come. Slogan. It seems to come out of nowhere, <laughs> uh, even though you know the readers of the Gospel of John probably already know the tradition of the bread and the cup. Um, the, in in the process of Jesus preaching, this seems to come out of nowhere. So all these disciples leave, and then you just have uh, the 12 left, and they're probably scratching their heads and really wondering what the heck is going on. And then Jesus says, are you going to leave also? And they say, you know, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's always been uh, a message that stuck with me, that um, the disciples weren't super clued into Jesus. They were as clueless as we are sometimes. Yeah. But they recognize some X factor, something special about Jesus. And that's, I think, in many ways, people's experience of the Bible is they have questions, things are off-putting or offensive, um, they feel like giving up, and yet there's something special. Many people can sense there's something special about the Bible, so I wanted to start with that. As we got into kind of the center of the sermon, I wanted to at least give a piece of assurance that, you know, what Christians consider kind of the heart of the Bible, which is the message about Jesus, 
is something that we can take legitimately from a historical standpoint. This is something I teach a whole course on. I mentioned in the sermon, I teach a 30-hour, sometimes a 45-hour course on the Gospels, so I couldn't really say everything I want to say in 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But I did want to talk about things like the Gospel writers really thought they were writing history in the way that they did back in that time. So I talked about the Gospels as ancient biography. In Greek, they would say bios. Um, there's all been this scholarship in the last 20, 30 years that the Gospels fit into the category of ancient biography alongside people like Plutarch, who was an ancient Greek writer. I also want to talk about um, eyewitness testimony, because you didn't have libraries with lots of historical information the way we do today. You don't have YouTube. Yeah. You don't have... Accessibility was way low. Yeah. And so you don't have, you know, cameras to record everything. So how did you know if things were true? You wanted to talk to trustworthy people. This is where eyewitness testimony comes in. And so Luke chapter one, right away, Luke says, I wanted to dot my I's, cross my T's, talk to eyewitnesses. And the last thing I did in that section was just talk about why there are four Gospels. Actually, in the early church, this is a little bit of an embarrassment that there are four Gospels. You know, the neighbors would say, why do you have four Gospels? Why not just one? Are you guys confused? What's going on? The church eventually creates something called the Dia Tesseron, which is not the Tesseract. But the Dia Tesseron is is basically one super Gospel that kind of mashes the Gospels together. But then the church said, no, that's not going to work. We we need the fourfold testimony of these Gospels. So I used an illustration from the life of Winston Churchill of this house that he had, this country house with four different types of portraits in his house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, rest at rest, you know, in, in a heated conference with his family. Just to show you the Gospels aren't contradicting each other. They're giving you different snapshots of one and the same person. Um, but what I've realized over the years is um, historical apologetics only get people so far in their approach to Christianity. It may relieve some of the pressure and tensions, but you can't really his, you know, historicize someone into Christian faith. You can help break down some of the barriers, but ultimately you have to be like Peter where you say, I sense something special here. Yeah, I appreciate that thought process too. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it helps relieve, relieve the tension a little bit, yeah. But there's still more. Like, it's reality of, I think, the journey in the grand scheme. So, so I wanted at the end there to, to not just say, hey, here are the 10 historical, you know, archaeological digs that we have that prove the Bible's true. Because that doesn't tend to lead people into faith. There really is this element of, I have to own it for myself. So I use an analogy during um, communion of, you know, I had COVID recently, and I took a lot of Tylenol. <laughs> and, you know... It's not effective until you consume it, and then it has the opportunity to change you. And Christian faith is like that. You can address some of your academic historical questions, but ultimately you have to take that step of faith. And um, that's kind of the challenge I wanted to end with. A couple quick uh, additions to to that, and I really enjoyed the message in EJ, so thanks for that. Um, I think in my pastoral ministry and even in my own journey— I think when people approach the Bible, they come with kind of two avenues of questions, doubts, concerns. Um, One is, is the Bible that we're holding in our hands the real deal, right? I mean, because there's there's all kind of stories out there, and it changed over all these years, and people messed with it, and and that's all. There's so many books on that, right? So I think you recommended uh, Peter Williams' Can We Trust the Gospel Books, which is a small book. 
Um, I think you'll really enjoy it if you read it, and that will begin to scratch that itch a bit. And if you want more, talk to Nietzsche and I. There's way, way more books on that. Um, but I, I think from both of our perspectives, yes, I think, you know, the, the translations that we have, I mean, it's, if you're reading in the original Greek or Hebrew, it's, it's better, but I think the translations are, are fairly accurate to, to, uh, the, the earliest manuscripts that, that we have. And then the second is maybe the more the heart question, but it's a head question too. And I love the word you used. I, I think people get sidetracked when they're like, is there, are there mistakes in the Bible and this and that? Um, is it true? Right. And I think that really just drives to the heart of it, and, and I think that it is. And I think that God's Word is true. The best way to live that out is uh, to practice it and to live into it and to kind of join that story is what I heard you saying at the end and that I see in your own life. Prove it to be true and how you live it out. I think that people will find that it is. If somebody wants to get really nerdy, uh, a, a great book that I read a number of years ago is Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Dr. Yeah. Richard Borkum is how I think how you pronounce it. I did some research one how do you time. Spell it? I deep it, it's it's B A U C C K H A M. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's pronounced Borkum. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But uh, he's he's a very respected scholar, and it, it is nerdy. But um, I found it fascinating on what eyewitness testimony. He even has research on memory of when people see car crashes and stuff like that. So if you want to go to the next level, that would be a book. Anyway, a couple editions there. Nice, nice, nice. All right, so Nijay, uh, the big question is then, with this wonderful sermon you gave, <laughs> what didn't make the cut, man? What hit the cutting room floor? Yeah, probably like 20 lectures that I wasn't able to give from my <laughs> class. Um, I'll tell you a couple things that I, uh, that I would want to know if I were listening to a sermon on, um, especially the historical reliability of the Gospels. One is people often ask, um, can we verify that Jesus was a real figure from history? Are there other sources outside the Gospels that can corroborate that? Because there, there is a, a, a kind of an urban legend or myth that goes around saying Jesus wasn't a real person in history. Um, and the answer to that is yes, there's, there's evidence from multiple sources, in, including non-Christian sources, that you know, talk about Jesus. And so um, it's not that unfathomable that there could be this man named Jesus Uh, A second topic that I didn't treat that would have been uh, something I would have liked to have gotten into is miracles. Can miracles happen? Um, And I think that's an obstacle for kind of very, quote-unquote, scientifically-minded people, um, you know, who want to know, okay, feeding of the multitudes, resurrection from the dead, um, this sounds made up. You know, that's what I, I think people... Yeah, we read this Approach in fantasy it. stories, thought process. Yeah, like, yeah. no, this, this stuff couldn't have happened. And so that, that, those are things, I w- had I had more time, I would have liked to have talked about. I will say, though, living in Portland, uh, Oregon, you know, people on the outside, you know, in other states, hear the word uh, anti-religious or anti-Christian. Um, I will say, you know, most of the people I meet in Portland, uh, they're not against spirituality, they're not even against religion. They don't like kind of like a, uh, you know, heavy-handed organized religion. Um, but if, if, if I had a conversation about, you know, what's possible, I think most people I talk to would say anything's possible. Um, so I don't know if that is as big of an obstacle as some people make it out to be the idea of miracles happening. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that a uh, thought on uh, on miracles is and and then also thought on the historicity of Jesus because people will, will run into this and some of this series is making 
followers of Jesus in our community aware of what's out there? You know, especially younger people, so that they're not sidetracked by that, like we're trying to hide something from them. So in each message, including the one coming up Sunday on the Bible and slavery, we'll try to like get out there and present all sides of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The historicity of Jesus, I, I think some people in the field of resurrection studies, I don't know what the exact term is, the minimalistic route or the minimalistic theory, kind of like what can we get scholarly consensus on? both secular, Christian, whatever. And and there's broad scholarly consensus that Jesus lived, existed, right. yes. and died on a cross around 30 to 33 AD. And there's actually broad scholarly consensus that the tomb that he was laid in was then vacant sometime after. Now, then we get into resurrection. There's not scholarly consensus on that. And so, so I, I think that's a good, the, I like that, the minimalistic. What can we agree on? And we're starting there. And I, I like to approach that with the Bible and the Gospels, too, and I love that you stayed on the Gospels, because I think the Gospels largely, even for non-Christians, are considered robust ancient sources, mm-hmm. both with how many manuscripts we have and all that kind of stuff. So that's just good for people to know. We're not, we're not dealing with, like, you know, non-Christian scholars saying, laughing at them. Um, they're, they're considered really good historical documents. With miracles, I like to say, and it depends on how you define miracles, you go the David Hume route or whatever, the philosophical route, but I think miracles lie any si- anything outside the scientific s- sphere mm-hmm. that you, you can kind of study and this and that. And, and 92%, I think, is the recent of people in the world believe that God exists. Now, what kind of God, whatever, that's, that's a vast majority of humanity on the yeah. planet. So you're presupposing miracles by even saying that, unless your version of God just absolutely stays distant and never intervenes in the natural state, which could be possible, but then you would have to say the possibility of a miracle would exist if the possibility of God exists. So it's a very simplistic, sorry for all the philosophers out there <laughs> that are shaking their head. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to dumb it down, but I think for, for those of you, most of you listening, that might resonate with you. If you believe in God, then you least believe in the potentiality of a miracle, and that's most people. Well, Craig Keener, I, you know, I would have brought this up had I, had I um, talked about this in my sermon. You know, he's a American uh, New Testament scholar, and he's married to uh, an African African woman, and um, uh, he is used to hearing the argument that comes from kind of Western Enlightenment that miracles didn't happen in the Bible because I don't see miracles happen today. And so he actually went to Africa, I believe this is correct, he went to Africa for research and, and, and walked around and documented people's stories of miracles happening in their villages uh, from his wife's connections and her networks and her friendships. Just to say, when we say miracles can't happen today, are we just saying in our neighborhood, you know what I mean? Are we actually taking a global perspective on this, which is kind of what you were doing, John, is looking at it um, from a global perspective rather than just... Um, you know, hey, I don't, you know, I don't see miracles happen when I pray for an extra hundred dollars in my wallet. Um, I have prayed hard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> if it were just up to faith. And Craig Keener has, I think, a robust two-volume thing on kind of a very scholarly treatment on miracles that that also include a lot of his travels and his own personal yeah. experiences. Where if you're, we're getting way off topic now, but I, like you guys if, are diving in it. If you're interested in that, um, yeah, it's just called miracles. Yeah. yeah, and then he was on a recent also podcast of Unbelievable, 
um, which was I thought was really excellent. And he was he was talking about uh, miracles and kind of debating with people who who didn't believe miracles existed. But I, I found it fascinating. And uh, so if you want to dig deeper there, uh, he, uh, Elijah Stevens also is the name of a guy who's who's just come out with a documentary on miracles, working with Craig and others going around the globe, like documenting and interviewing people. Where can I find the documentary? Uh, I'm trying to. I, I noticed you're, I'm you're googling away here, but right uh, I'll, like, that's what everyone's thinking right now. It's yeah. called uh, the documentary is called uh, Send Proof. S E N D Send Proof, and you can find it at sendproof.com. I've not watched it, but I was fascinated hearing this debate with a with an, a skeptic. Um, but that was his. I think Elijah Stevens is a Christian. But he's going around the world interviewing people, a lot of third world countries, mm-hmm. on their own experience with miracles. Some even at the rare, like rising from the dead. So anyway, it just sounded fascinating. But but Craig is a legit scholar, yeah, and so he has a robust two volume work on miracles as well. All right. So we also um, wanted to mention uh, throughout this process some of these other books: the Dan Kimball book, um, "How Not to Read the Bible." And Mike Bird's book, which I couldn't find. I was going all over your office and Mike's desk. Yeah. What's the title of that one, John? Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. What are what are some of Mike's seven things, Nijay, uh, that you wish people would know about the Bible? Well, I can, if, if it's okay, Josh, let me just, yeah, yeah. No, we'll, get, we'll get the Kimball book out of the way. Okay. Um, but I want to raise awareness of it, and then I can actually... I don't know if you have them in front of you, Nietzsche. I can just quickly go through the seven things, and if you want to remark on any of them, is that yeah. all right? That's Let's fine. move quickly, but yeah. We'll move quickly. <laughs> Josh, like, that sounds really long. Uh, the Kimball book uh, is is relatively new. Kimball's a pastor in Santa Cruz, California. Pretty thoughtful guy. How not to read the Bible, making sense of the anti-woman, anti-science, pro-violence, and pro-slavery and other crazy-sounding parts of Scripture. It's a very long it's subtitle. A long, long subtitle. <laughs> but that should, uh, that should raise your, your, uh, your interest. But um, there's lots of pictures in this book, Nijay, and I like graphs. Pictures. I like pictures. And uh, people really Nijay. like those. Dan's a pastor. He knows how to keep attention. But just real quick, the, he, he breaks it into uh, a couple parts here. Part one, never read, the, never read a Bible verse. Uh, or you'll have to believe in magical unicorns. He's trying to draw us in there. Part two, Stranger Things, Shrimp, Slavery, and the Skin of a Dead Pig. Part three, Boys Club Christianity, Is the Bible Anti-Woman? Does it promote misogyny? We're going to get to that later in the series, that topic. So uh, part four, Jesus riding a dinosaur. Do we have to believe between science and the Bible? Uh, We will address that question later in the series. Part five, How My God Can Beat Up Your God. Um, does Christianity claim all their religions are wrong? And we'll get into that question as well later in the series. And finally, uh, and I want to touch on this a little bit today, if we can get through Mike's uh, seven things here, but rated NC-17, the horror of God's Old Testament mm. violence. So anyway, a lot of things that I, I would imagine it raises your awareness. Our friend Scott McKnight uh, supports it on the back here, I see. Uh, Tim <laughs> Mackey, our friend, supports it. So there you go. I mean, David Crowder, I mean, come on. Yeah, everybody wants that book. I mean, Dan knows everybody. All right. Stay tuned for part two of Can We Take the Bible Seriously? With John Rosenstiel, special guest speaker, Dr. Nijay Gupta, and myself, Josh Sharp.